Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's November the 4th, 2021. As always, I'm talking to you from the great city of San Francisco on the edge of Silicon Valley. I'm not sure it's a particularly great city. I'm not even sure if it's a city, actually. It's a rather small place. It has a, a village quality, for better or worse, only half a million people here. But it's influential, and you can all imagine San Francisco, even if you haven't been there. You do need to come here. Uh, San Francisco is a beautiful place. Uh, Time Out magazine just ran a poll of the 37 best cities in the world in 2021. And of course, San Francisco won it. Um, as um, you can read Time Out of why San Francisco has been named, at least by Time magazine, the best city in 2021. Uh, but I can guarantee you, as someone who lives here in the heart of the city and literally in the geographical center, it's probably also the worst city in the world. Um, we have headlines today from our local newspaper, which is it's being kind to call it a newspaper, the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, that the pandemic deepened inequities. It's an incredibly unequal city full of housed, tense cities um, of, um, of incredibly poor uh, people. And then, of course, multi-million, 10, 100 million homes littered around the city. Um, it's a city of enormous crime. The crime is so bad now that um, stores are shutting because the police are turning a blind eye to theft. So people are just wandering into pharmacies and stealing everything. Um, and of course, uh, given the pandemic, and this is true around the world, uh, San Francisco has become a, a center for COVID. And we're back now with orange and red tears. So all the best and the worst of the cities. And I, I, I love cities and I love to talk about cities on the show as, uh, as regular viewers and listeners will know. A uh, really good book out called Metropolis, A History of the City, Humankind's Greatest Invention by uh, the Essex-based um, writer Ben Wilson. It came out last year and it's just out in paperback. And I'm thrilled that uh, Ben is joining us from... Uh, Essex, anything but a city, but he is an authority on cities. Uh, ben, is San Francisco the greatest city in the world? I hope you say yes. <laughs> I well, when I, I went on a, a trip around the world to, uh, researching this book, which I started in London, and I went to Lagos, Mumbai, Singapore, uh, Shanghai, South Korea, Los Angeles, and ended up in uh, in San Francisco. Um, and I kind of reflected when I was there that, yes, it probably is the greatest city in the world in terms of the sheer power it wields over the world in a way that it kind of, you know, that there's often a city in the, in, in, the, in the history of the world at any particular time that kind of calls the shots, that has a sort of disproportionate amount of power and influence. And I think San Francisco is one of them. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic city. As you say, I was kind of really struck by the problems that city, your city has, especially after going to bigger cities that have equally big problems like Lagos, which is um, which is a massive city of probably close to 20 or 25 million people. Um, but it kind of functions, the, you know, a city like Lagos. That's the kind of amazing thing, the yeah. thing about well, cities is that they have 
though, as you said, in your, you said just now that they are an amalgam of their good and bad parts, the darkness and the light. Um, and we love them partly because they produce these amazing contrasts. Um, your book, um, your book is not just a, another tourist guide of cities. It's a serious history of cities um, as centers of innovation. As you say, the remarkable thing about San Francisco um, is it's a hub of innovation. It's on the edge of Silicon Valley, although I guess San Jose could also claim to be the, the metropolis for Silicon Valley. Um, we had um, Michael Pye. I'm sure you know his new book out about Amsterdam. Mm. Uh, sorry, Antwerp as a world city. Wonderful book. And we had a great conversation with him a, a couple of months ago. Your book focuses on, you don't write that much about Antwerp. But you write a lot about Lisbon and Amsterdam uh, as these uh, hubs, these commercial hubs as world cities. What is it about places like Antwerp and Lisbon and Amsterdam over the last 500 years that have made them such important centers of innovation? Well, that's a good question for lots of different reasons. I'd, I'd say a city like Lisbon was kind of on the edge of Europe. It was a very poor, uh, marginalized place until it spectacularly kind of launched itself into the into the world through exploration of the, the first starting in the North Atlantic and then pushing down around Africa and into, into the Indian Ocean and encountering a world in the Indian Ocean, which was far more advanced in terms of trade, in terms of the cosmopolitan cosmopolitanism of its cities, because they connected these great kind of trade routes that went from the, the Spice Islands of the East, China, connected through a network of cities across the Indian Ocean to the Middle East, to Baghdad and other great cities like that, which were, were at the center of the world. And it was that kind of intrusion of Lisbon with its warships bristling with arms that was able to kind of upset this free trade zone um, and and capture these trade routes. And I'd say throughout the book, from the very be beginning, from the first cities in the in the very ancient world, Uruk in Mesopotamia, which is in southern Iraq, um, through its, its cities that, that can bestride these trade routes to connect different places that really flourish. And I was really struck by the, the very sort of similarities of these these trade routes it seemed to be the the power the thing that that generates the kind of the heat of of urbanism um and how cities are able to kind of capture those trade routes one way or another get a lot of power lisbon was a was it a global city because it was able to connect the new world the discoveries the, the post-columbus discoveries of the new world with the much older trading systems of the far east and to become a center of the world a place where all those trade routes converge. Lisbon does it by force, but it was a place of incredible cosmopolitanism. It was a place of architectural cosmopolitanism. It borrowed from around the world. It had striking sights. It had incredible foods. Uh, it was the place in the kind of the, the Renaissance where- It was the colonial center, of course, as well. And, a, and you a, note in your book, the importance of Jews in Lisbon. One yeah. of the, I can't remember the name of the, the, the woman, um, I'm embarrassed to admit, but in Michael Pye's book about Antwerp and in our conversation, he talks about a Jewish, a female Jewish banker who went from Lisbon to Antwerp, who was basically driven out of Lisbon because, yeah. of, um, uh, be, because of the, um, the hostility of the, the Portuguese regime to Jews uh, and went to Antwerp and contributed to its uh, short-term rise as a world city. The role of minorities, particularly commercial minorities, uh, 
the Jewish communities of, of the Middle Ages are really important in terms of this innovative city, aren't they? Of course, and because Lisbon was was for a time a very cosmopolitan, open city, and the kind of the the trading, exploration things was was often led by its Jewish population. Uh, it was it was a sort of alliance of the kind of the slightly brutal kind of crusading nobility with the commercial acumen, the the the, um, the scientific knowledge of its Jewish population. When Lisbon threw out its Jews and or and or killed and subjected them to the Inquisition. That to me is the end of Lisbon as a great trading city when it when it became intolerant. And it was those cities in in, in Northern Europe, as beginning of Antwerp, but then especially Amsterdam in following Antwerp, which opened its doors and was tolerant and was able to capitalize on well, was able to suck in the human capital um, that had propelled Lisbon to kind of this global status yeah. and power. And it's, um... Reading your book, it really reminded me. I mean, obviously the the treatment, the behavior of the the Nazis in in in, in Amsterdam was um, appalling in historical terms. But it really underlined in symbolic terms how that kind of regime would do away with innovation. On a rather sadder note, I uh, did a show also earlier this year with the American journalist Janine Giovanni Di Giovanni on the end of Christianity in the Middle East. And she writes about the destruction of um, the, Christ, the Christian tradition of churches and communities throughout the Middle East. How important were this diverse Christian and, I guess, Jewish communities in the rise of uh, the, the cities of the Middle East? Um, obviously, Beirut, uh, Baghdad, Damascus. And yeah. can we account for the fact that these cities are no longer world cities because of their destruction of diversity? Well, yeah, I'd accept that point. I think cities are, are, are great because of them, but they're innovative because they draw people together from lots of different regions. And I think the 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 the, the tolerance is, is is key to that success in a way. Baghdad, the great city of the um, of the Middle Ages, without question, the biggest and most powerful city, had very big populations of. Of Christians and Jews alongside uh, its, you know, its obviously majority Muslim population, um, and that allows for connections to be made, intellectual as well as trading. Uh, Baghdad was great because it, it united lots of different traditions of Mediterraneans with Islamic, with Central Asian, Indian, Chinese, and really having that open-mindedness and that cosmopolitanism really does make make cities successful and powerful i'd say in the middle east the um the tradition of city building is the oldest in the world right it goes back yeah to, you begin with uh, your, your middle first middle. chapter is about the uruks and and you do a yeah. wonderful job recreating these first cities on earth yeah i mean it's i mean they are i mean they are by their nature open they they bring people in from big areas and they become a kind of cauldron of ideas Uruk is where um uh, where the written word begins, where money, number systems, uh, you know, the beginnings of epic poetry, and going back to that theme of the darkness and the light. It's also the bit where slavery begins, organized uh, bureaucracies, organized warfare, kingship tyranny. So you get this whole blending of very fast kind of uh, advances in in um, in human history based on these these urban centers, uh, and and that that's you know the Middle East is the kind of the cradle of 
of of urbanism. Babylon, um, the great kind of city of evil, was a city of of, of mixing of of different populations. Yeah, you call it uh, the you call Babylon the Garden of Eden, or at least the the chapter on Babylon is called the Garden. Well, I contrast of Eden. it. Yeah, I contrast it with. I mean, in the Christi, Christian Judeo. Um, you know, worldview, the, 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 you know, the humans, you know, the, um, the, the gift of the of God is the garden. That's where we start. And we end in a celestial city in, in Mesopotamian and other cultures. Um, the gift of the gods is the city. Uh, and that's striking contrast. And in the, in the Hebrew Bible, obviously clear, you know, Babylon is the city of evil. That, that's not the garden of Eden. It's the, it's the opposite of the garden, garden of Eden. The city is the thing that corrupts us. So the city's got a very bad name in in in. in and uh, Augustine, of course, wrote his famous book, "The yeah. City of God," as a contrast to the city of man. The city of man was where it all goes wrong, really. And I think that that kind of suspicion of cities runs through sort of Western culture completely. Um, the, the idea well, that there is today, I would, uh, and and you hint at this, and it's obvious in America today. This increasing division between city and countryside, between right and left, between hinterland and, uh, and 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 the coastal cities, is just another chapter in all that. It's another version of it for sure, and sort of add suburbanization into the mix, and you get a very complicated picture. I mean, you know, suburbanization does also suggest that we want to flee the city. You know, well, we want both. I would guess with suburb yeah. with suburbs, we want the city, and we want the countryside and of course the truth of suburbs is we get neither let's move on yeah. to your third chapter ben um you talk about uh, athens of course is there's no book about the history of cities without athens mm. we had the oxford historian armand dangor on the show recently um talking about what the ancient greeks can teach us about innovation what did the athenian experience teach us about uh, the urban experiment, particularly in political terms, you know, we've inherited so many of the values of politics, of democracy, of the polis from the Athenians. Is that the major legacy of Athens? Well, I think, I mean, I think so. I think what Athens or what the Greek polis did in in, in the history of urbanization was, was to create, was it creation of public space? And that's how I wanted to kind of approach this mm. chapter, not just as places that sort of automatically generate generate ideas but how does the organization how does the shape of the city kind of um make it a kind of culture that's open to ideas and political discussions i think what the, the greek polis added to the idea of cities was 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 public space the agora in in athens was a sort of a, a sort of riotous jumble of lots of different functions it was where people went to participate in their their duty as jurors to go and participate in trials to to go nearby was the place where they, you know, discussed and debated politics, but also where they bought and sold. It's a marketplace of of goods as much as it was a marketplace of ideas. And that bringing into the set and putting at the center of the city a, a public space for, well, let's admit it, for, for male citizens, not for not for females or slaves or outsiders. You know, it was a very, very much a Greek male kind of place to exchange these ideas. But also uh, um, that the Athens wasn't just about that. It was a kind of jerry-built, put-together kind of tumultuous city that had been built incrementally. So where Socrates got his ideas wasn't necessarily in these great sort of public forums. It was in the back streets, especially in the places where immigrants came from throughout the Greek world and, the, and, and, and Asia. 
Uh, it's kind of in that kind of collision of people on, on the streets in this kind of jumble of very narrow, unplanned, probably quite unsanitary streets that you get this kind of lots of ideas germinating and and people mixing, which is kind of what at the heart of urbanism. But, you know, that kind of idea of, of Athens as a face-to-face -face open culture kind of inform their politics and their philosophy in, in ways that, you know, we should recognise, especially when we're talking about cities, and contrast that with another kind of product of the Greek world, which was, which was more of a blend of the Greek world and the, and the, and the kind of Asian and African world, which was um, Alexandria, which was a formal mm. planned city. And knowledge in in Athens was a thing of the street, which, which is what makes it such an interesting city and, and a kind of open kind of mix of people coming in and out of the city, out through the Greek world, washing through Athens. Whereas Alexandria was planned along a grid system. It was, you know, a very, very planned thing. And knowledge was kind of encoded in it. Never could have had, you could never library. have had uh, Socrates in Alexandria, could no. you? No. No, it was it was knowledge was more encyclopedic, if that makes I, sense. I'm guessing that Plato was a bigger admirer of uh, Alexandria with its well, he would have been, its, he would have been, yeah. he would have been. Yeah, great he, stuff. He, uh, this is wonderful stuff, uh, Ben. Uh, your your new book, Metropolis: A History of the City, Humankind's Greatest Invention, is an excellent read. Let's let's take a break, and then when we come back, I wanna. Uh, I want to fast forward. I want to fast forward to the 19th century and then to the 20th century. Uh, so we'll be back in a second. Hold on, everybody. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenon. We are back. Let's fast forward a couple of thousand years to the 19th century. Um, you, um, uh, you, uh, Ben, you, 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 a couple of your earlier books, one is called Heyday, then the 1850s and the dawn of the global age. You write about 
the 19th century globalization of, 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 of capitalism, uh, an Anglo-centric world. You, you also, uh, in 2007, came out with an interesting book, The Making of Victorian Values, Decency and Dissent in Britain, 1789 to 1837. Of course, those were the days of Jeremy Bentham and his notion of the panopticon of a an idealistic or utilitarian surveillance state. I'm curious, Ben, um, you have uh, an excellent chapter on, on London as a global city, the quintessential 19th century global city. Mm. Uh, uncoincidentally arose at the same time as individualism and democracy. Did London invent, or these 18th, 19th century modern cities, did they invent the notion of individual privacy? Because there was no privacy in antiquity, was there, for the individual? Absolutely not. No, cities were places of constant, you know, being part of the public realm. That's what cities were about. Um, they were centred on on agoras, forums, plazas, piazzas, Um life was done in public houses were very small if you think about something like ancient rome most people lived in tiny cramped apartment called apartments called in insulare um life food eating the pleasures of life were all conducted it on the street at street level in public baths in bars you know cafes well not sorry not cafes um in um uh, amphitheaters you know in a very public way of living london as i tell the story of london was was a much more bringing into the into into a commercial realm probably to begin with the beginnings of things like coffee houses which were semi-public semi-private where you could go and exchange news london was was sort of instrumental really in, in the western world of bringing coffee as, as a kind of power in the city at a place of association it's where a lot of the kind of the modern forms of capitalism were pioneered. The insurance industry began in Lloyd's Coffee House and various stock trading, scientific, where science and um, and business met was kind of over, a, over a cup of coffee in coffee houses. It was a city that kind of sort of reveled in its social life, but it wasn't the social life of, of the, the public city as we, as we would have known it. It was much more around private clubs, uh, pubs, taverns, theatres, uh, places of entertainment where people can meet and associate. Uh, but in and terms develop, of... And, 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 and in a sense, particularly the coffee houses, develop, nurture themselves. They nurture themselves, absolutely. Well, it was centred around commercialism, the commercial, the kind of the idea of the cities we would understand it now, were very commercialised pleasures. And it was the beginning, I think, of, you know, the retreat into a much more idea of a city as a place of, of privacy, of the home. I think you find that particularly in Amsterdam in the in the late 17th century, especially in its art, that the city is a place, mm. of, the public city is a place of making business. It's quite brutal, it's tough. The, the home is kind of celebrated for the first time really as a retreat from the rigors of the city into a controlled is that the, uh, where you surround yourself with stuff, where right. it's the commodities that you buy and you show off. And Amsterdam, of course, at the time being as we've said before, the centre of a kind of commercial networks, that you know, the, the, the power of, of the city was reflected in the private tastes of the individuals and what they had at home, whether it's, you know, where, uh, China, you know, China from 
from Asia or spices or exotic fruits or flowers or bulbs, whatever it happened to be, it was, it was, it was, it was done in a domestic setting. And I think places like London in the 18th century, you see over the course of a century, a kind of pulling back from the very kind of um, uh, public nature of life that you go out of your home Home is somewhere to sleep and you go out into the world and you traverse the city, you conduct business, you buy food, you eat, you drink on a constant constant round of, of going out into the city. In the beginning of the book I wrote, The, the Making of Victorian Values, you, you see the beginning of this kind of retreat into a much more domesticated private realm. And that is very intimately connected with the suburbs with you know with an idea of the home as being where morality and virtue is is nurtured a much more idea of you know family-based things and then you know as we said before where do you go you kind of reject the city but you don't want to go too far from the city so this is london was kind of where suburban modern suburbanization began to happen at its fastest rate coinciding at a period it's you know, probably appropriate ben, that you're uh, you're talking to me from uh... Essex, although the rural bit of Essex, not the suburban yeah. bit. Uh, you mentioned um, art in Holland. Um, it reminds me of Vermeer and his treatment mm. of the interior, both of homes and yeah. I guess of the individual. I'm curious as to your take on the city's production um, of art. Uh, when I saw the title of your book, I, of course, thought of Fritz yeah. Lang's great 1927 movie, Metropolis which is a kind of poem to the city, to the industrial city. Um, what, what is it about cities that bring out our most creative elements? For me, one of the reasons I love living in San Francisco is because of its cinematic qualities. Yeah. Vertigo, a poem to San Francisco, uh, Hitchcock's great poem to San Francisco is my favorite movie. Bullet is another wonderful film. Um, what is it about fill uh cities and creativity i had um uh also uh uh the los angeles based journalist ron brownstein on the show recently has written a book rock me on the water which argues that 1974 was the moment that los angeles transformed the world through its movies and music and television uh talk a little bit about cities and creativity yeah well it brings out i mean as i said before the beginning of of, and that's why I call the book Humankind's Greatest Invention, because it's it, it's where all kind of subsequent inventions come from, isn't it? It's the bringing together of people. The sort of it's the meta, to, to use, uh, to yeah. steal Facebook's new 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 description <laughs> yeah. of itself. It's yeah. the meta of our history, the city. It is, yeah. Now, when you bring people together like that, when they cluster, compete, collaborate, you get you know an invention you get very quick innovations in whether it's kind of renaissance italy or whether it's athens or Iraq or london or wherever it happens to be but from its artistic point of view i think don't you think it must be that the novel comes from the beginnings of these commercial metropolises? absolutely yeah about. from certainly it's, from 18th and 19th century england yeah. the interior of the self and often based in cities yeah. it's the interior of the self but it's also finding yourself in a maze, the city streets, it's those twists and turns, those unexpected incidents that, that cities produce. 
Um, it's the and the great, uh, the great yeah. dystopian uh, novel about cities is Notes from the Underground. So it, yeah. there's a very dark yeah. side to it too. It's the dark side is something that we feast on all the time. Metropolis, the film, is 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 a film about right. the dark side of cities. It's the kind of the industrial city of the 19th century with its kind of devouring of people and its kind of abuse and this idea that there's a sort of substrata of people that work hard to keep the city going and people that live in the top in the airy kind of bright parts of the city who kind of feast like a kind of um, Old Testament diabolical, you know, um, creature monster on, um, on on the blood and sweat of people that work in the city. Uh, cities are great at creating that. They're great at creating those contrasts. I wrote in my chapter, I write about Paris primarily through the eyes of the Impressionists, that what they're recording is the fast movement of the city, that kind of constant theatre yeah. of life and the ability to sort of sit in a cafe and watch the, that kind of performance unfold itself every day. Who are the people you are you are looking at? What stories can you write in, into them? You know, it's um, it's rear, win, rear, rear, uh, rear View, isn't it? But another Hitchcock film that, that you rear can window. project. Your, rear Window, yeah, you can um, project yourself constantly on, on yeah, onto I mean, in, in terms of... You can tell stories. Right. Paris, uh, of course, Balzac was um, the most brilliant and prolific of uh, novelists about uh, urban 19th century Paris. Let's move on. There's so much to discuss, uh, uh, Ben. L let's fast forward to today or perhaps to tomorrow. Um, mm. I, I want to talk about Lagos later, but we had uh, Pamela Paul on the show recently, the book editor of the New York Times. She has a new book out, What We've Lost to the Internet. Yeah. Uh, and um, I also had uh, I also had Dave Eggers on the show, the novelist, has a new book out called The Every. It's a book about San Francisco, which presents the San Francisco tomorrow as a surveillance place where there yeah. is no secrecy or privacy. Talking of San Francisco again and the digital revolution, are you fearful that tomorrow's city will be um, a reinvention, a more efficient reinvention of... Um, uh, of the panopticon, uh, of yeah. this utilitarian dream, which is for many of us a nightmare of being watched all the time, of a, a, a benthamite absence of um, of, uh, of privacy, a return, I guess, in many ways to Athens or the Middle Ages. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think cities do two things, don't they? And I, I kind of write about this in, in a kind of considering the idea of sex in the city that that cities, because they are kind of big and anonymizing, it's a place where you can go and reinvent yourself sexually. Mm. Find you find new bodies in cities as well as you find new minds to to kind of be in, you know to be inventive or to rediscover and reinvent yourself. And that's you know that's why people feared cities because it because they were seen as licentious, kind of incubating vice, creating new perversions um, because they were places that were very sensual. You know, and I wanted to capture that sensuality of cities. All that's to say that um, the things that people sort of feared about cities was partly that kind of, you know, 
that you weren't being watched all the time. There were dark corners in which to, to, to find pleasure and to find freedom from away from a much more sort of surveilling society in the countryside, in small villages or where or, or what have you. Cities, you know, freed people from that a lot. Um, people also, you know, late in, a, in the time of the big industrial cities, saw cities as very anonymizing and creating alienation between people, that they were, you know, that they were places where you got, got lost too much in the crowd. To my mind, that's one of the pleasures of cities, that you can become part of the crowd or you can subtract yourself and become an observer. You can do two things at once or choose who you are in the city much more. But I take your point. I think one of the, the problems, you know, as, as I was writing this book, there's lots of talk about smart cities, cities that were going to become more efficient by using the technologies of the Internet, the latest technologies of sensors and other things to make cities flow more. You know, and this is another iteration of what I've been trying to be talk, talk about all the way through. This is really that, um, you know, we, we have the city that's sort of messy and complicated and we have the idea of a city that can be controlled and perfected and made perfect. But it's often the attempt to make a city more perfect. That 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 ruins it, you know. That that they are. So there's a little bit of. Uh, you, I assume um, you're a little bit of a fan of uh, Jane Jacobs yeah. and her death and life of great American uh, yeah, exactly. cities, which is a, a polemic against the notion of planning. I know you're yeah. not necessarily the the biggest fan of planners like Robert Moses. Well, I mean, planning definitely has a part, and planning is is important, but. Plants, attempts to kind of make people better through cities, which I think part of that smart city sort of surveillance technology is about, it has a very long pedigree and tradition that I try and draw out as, um, you know, that cities, are, you know, because they produce so many good things and also so many, you know, dark and dangerous and, and filthy things, um, that only, if only we got it right, we would we would make ourselves better people, which is an incredibly dangerous idea, I think, that, that, that some master planner can do that. But yet we do it throughout our history. We've done it, whether it's Le Corbusier, or whether it's the planners of ancient Alexandria, there's always this attempt to kind of, you know, control the uncontrollable. And it's and what I sort of, you know, that kind of thing I share with Jane Jacobs and to take from her and lots of other people have is that idea of the kind of the incremental city, the kind of the energies, the spontaneous order that's created in cities. We're very good at doing that. Attempts to carve it up and 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 and, and perfect it have always gone hideously wrong, it has to be said. That's surprise, not surprise. And you you end and you end yeah. on a very positive note, I think, with I've never I, I've never been to Lagos. I've always I have to admit slightly intimidated with the idea of going yeah. there. I haven't. I'd love to go there. I've actually never been invited to give a speech or something. But yeah. you know that Lagos might be the future, and it's not a bad future. It's a future of energy, innovation, and anarchy. What what is it about Lagos that symbolizes the twenty first century, Ben? Well, because it's a it's a it's in Africa. Obviously, it's the fastest. It's the fastest growing mega city, probably, but it's in Africa, which is also the place which is about to undergo, you know, a sort of astonishing amount of urbanization um, over the course of this century, which will really determine a lot of our, our futures, not least in the kind of the, in, the, in an ecological sense of this very fast paced, very fast growing cities. And a city like Lagos tells us lots of different things about the modern world from an ecological point of view. It's a it's a it's a city in a very wet place. It's it's very vulnerable to changing climate, but still it expands into its wetlands. It kind of destroys mango forests, the things that sort of defend it from the elements as it grows. But it's growing. It's growing faster than any kind of planning can keep up with. You know, it's a it's a city that's 
very impoverished in terms of its infrastructure. It, it can't provide water or electricity or the basic kind of things for um, for all of its its population all the time. It doesn't have a, a functional, or it's, it's trying to get a better road system, but it's famous for its very long commute times that, you know, the traffic jams mm. back up through the city. It's a port city, so it has queues of lorries, even, you know, you know, queues of lorries and things backed up from port to trying to get it out into the west of West Africa. So it's a city with lots and lots of problems. But what's really impressive about a city like Lagos and lots of other sub-cities in in the third world, it is the innovation. And what I was just talking about, this kind of idea that spontaneous order can emerge from street level. There's a place I went to in Lagos called Ortiva Computer Village, which was started life as a sort of normal sort of city street, but it had a few, I, I gather, it's very hard to know the truth of these things, that, that it started with a few typewriter repair people in the 1990s, and they made the leap into technology. And now it's a place that has a turnover of millions of dollars a day, several billion a year, um, as a all quite ordinary looking African street market, but it's highly competitive. It has its own um, police, it has its own justice system, it has its own apprenticeship. So people go there, learn the, the, the trade of, of computers and IT, and then take it, maybe take it back to their own uh, hometown, starting their own businesses. So what you have is a kind of ecology of street level innovation of people going to the city. And it's the sort of quintessence of what, what you could call the DIY city, where people innovate. They come to the city often from small towns or rural backgrounds and escape an awful lot of poverty and kind of um, uh, and, and disease and, 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 and backwardness in the countryside. And going to the city is brutal. It's a, Lagos is a brutal place. Let's not kind of idea. But it's no it's more or less brutal, as you note in the book, than... 18th or 19th century Manchester no. or London or exactly. Chicago. Let, let's, uh, I, uh, Ben, I, I, I recently did a speech in Nur Sultan in, um, uh, in Kazakhstan, yeah. which to me was a sort of peculiar, surreal combination of Stalin's Moscow and Dubai. Um, yeah. wh what do you make of new cities that have just grown quite literally out of the desert or out of the steppes, like Nur Sultan? of course, Dubai or even Singapore. Yeah, uh, they're fascinating. I mean, the version of that, that kind of place that I went to was a place called Songdo uh, in South Korea, which has been created over the last decade or so at extraordinary expense, really as a sort of prototype of a modern smart city. Now, what I, I felt about that, you know, going there was I was less interested in the smart tech, which wasn't that visible, actually. You know, it wasn't, didn't blow me away. It was a kind of quite, it was a quite sort of boring place. It felt like a suburb, but looked like Manhattan. You know, it had um, great skyscrapers, but not a lot of life in. What I felt was, what's this place going to look like in 100 years time? I think, you know, we have a good way of inhabiting cities and kind of repurposing them. And I'm interested in, you know, you know, that cities are products of their disasters as well as their successes. Yeah, Maybe I mean, what reminded me about Noor Sultan is it, in terms of a hundred years time, it looks as if it's a hundred year old city already, even though it's only about 10 years old. Uh, yeah. I know, uh, Ben, you're, you're working and, and we need to finish now. I, this is a fascinating conversation. Um, I know you're working, uh, your next book is going to be about the environment and cities. Mm. Uh, I, I did an interview last year with the Miami-based journalist Mario Alejandro Ariza about the future of Miami and, and the... the um, uh, environmental apocalypse that's about to perhaps destroy the city. Very briefly, is that our future too? That's the dark side of the future of the city in the 21st century. 
Well, there's some things that give me, I mean, I, I think the, the things that may have made cities great in the past, their kind of density, their compactness, their bringing together of people could be a good model of how to live in, you know, what's going to be a very difficult and perilous century that, you know, living at, at, at densities has often been very good for us and pleasurable to live in, in packed cities. It's kind of where that innovation happens. But it's also we can be more resource efficient if we live at a greater density take pressure off land. We can't carry on this model of kind of constantly sprawling. I don't think it's good for us. It's not very good for our health, um, personally, and it's terrible for the planet. We need to get back to a, an older idea of cities, of being more compact, but also living in some kind of harmony with their environment. There are plenty of signs around the world of that becoming the case, that the only way of mitigating harsh temperatures, flooding, rising seawaters, is to make cities work more in harmony with their natural environments, their natural hydrologies, their energy sources, uh, and to become greener, because greener cities with more porous surfaces, more trees, mitigate against a lot of those things. So I see a lot of hope that, that cities, because they're innovative places, and because, and this is also what I talk about through the book, is they're very resilient. You know, it takes a lot to destroy a city. It takes a lot for a city to be... Um, you know, in the long term, they can go through big cycles of, of decline, but they but they also tend to um, survive quite um, quite well. You know, that kind of idea of resilience and reinvention, the constant sort of metamorphosis and adaptability of cities to crises, I think, is at the heart of urban history. And I think it should be at the heart of how we see cities in the future that they should. And perhaps be also, maybe we can see cities as metaphors for human history we had the harvard historian and theorist of the city um uh, uh edward glazer on the show he has two new books or two books that everyone knows about uh, survival of the city his newest book and then triumph of the city mm. and, and you're talking really about both triumph and survival and they're intimately bound up together i think your new book uh ben metropolis is is wonderful reading you're a very gifted, meticulous historian. It's it's a tremendous read. It's coherent. Congratulations on that book. As I said, you are talking to me of all places, Essex, east of London, not a city. Uh, in addition to uh, to your new book, uh, Ben, what should people be reading? For me, there's only one book about cities. It's Calvino's Invisible Cities. In fact, if I was sent to a desert island, it would probably be the book that I would take with me. What, what else would you suggest people read uh, uh, <laughs> to complement perhaps your book, Metropolis? Oh, to complement it? Well, I, Invisible Cities was kind of on the tip of my tongue because it's always on oh, beside, good. Well, my, I stole it's that always beside my bed. It's, it's just such a wonderful read. Um, in terms of um, complementing my book, um, I think, well, there's so many books about cities and how to survive them one book that really struck me which is it is sort of topical because there's a lot of stuff going on in this particular city at the moment glasgow is the the yeah. last book about shuggy bay and i thought was was fantastic i think any kind of book that's centered on any city will tell you something about about that city and i think that book about kind of privation and um trying to survive that quite a harsh urban environment i thought that was a terrific book it book had a prize winning a book from last year from last year, yeah, I thought that, published yeah, by Atlantic in, in the US. Yeah, give that a read. I think that's that's fabulous. Well, Ben Wilson, it's a real honor to have you on the show. Um, pleasure. I hope I haven't interrupted you too many times. There's so much to talk about. 
Um, and uh, I, I know you're writing now a book about the city and the environment, uh, and you perhaps it will be out next year. I'd love to have you back on to talk about that uh, when it's published. So thank you again, Ben, and, and good luck with the new book. And, and congratulations so on uh, congratulations on Metropolis, a tremendous read. Thank you. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.